Welcome to Episode 2 of Objections to Objectivism, the podcast that examines the critiques and problems with Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism from a moderate point of view. This is Episode 2 on the Non-Aggression Principle. I'm Patrick Shalopsky. I'm neither an objectivist nor an anti-objectivist, but I appreciate some aspects of the philosophy, and I'm learning more about it. Please join me in doing so. Please send your feedback in to objections to objectivism at gmail.com. That's objections to objectivism at gmail.com. So Ayn Rand's ideas are in the news from time to time, and I wanted to start a little segment covering some of those stories just to keep up on current events. Last week, there was an article in the Washington Post by Jennifer Burns, and in it, she proclaims, Ayn Rand is dead. Now, we knew that. We knew Ayn Rand died 35 years ago, but really, she's saying something a little different here. And let me quote a little of the article. Quote, The effort to fix a recognizable right-wing ideology on President Trump only obscures the more significant long-term trends that the election of 2016 laid bare. However much Trump seems like the Rand hero par excellence, a wealthy man with a fiery belief in himself, his victory signals the exhaustion of the Republican Party's romance with Rand. In electing Trump, the Republican base rejected laissez-faire economics in favor of economic nationalism. Full-fledged objectivism, the philosophy Rand invented, is an atheistic creed that calls for pure capitalism and a bare-bones government with no social spending on entitlement programs. And she goes on to say how little that Trump matches the ideal of an objectivist politician, basically proclaiming that objectivism is dead, that any influence that objectivism once had on the Republican Party has gone away. She says, Rand had kindled the Republicans' passions in the first place and she was the starting point for a generation of conservatives. But now Rand is on the shelf, gathering dust with Hayek, Burke, and other once prominent conservative luminaries. The new ideas on the right have moved away from classical liberalism altogether. Conservatives have always had a mixed reaction to the Western philosophical tradition that emphasizes the sanctity of the individual. And liberals, who have always loved to hate her over the next four years, may come to miss her defense of individual autonomy and liberty. Ayn Rand is dead. Long live Ayn Rand. So what do you say? Do you think that Ayn Rand's ideas are dead? Do her ideas no longer have any traction in either party? Or might they make a comeback? I'm wondering if they will. Let's turn to this week's topic. This is our first objection to objectivism. Episode 1 of this podcast was an overview of objectivism as a whole. I wanted to jump in with the first set of objections, which is about the non-aggression principle. So first, let's give a little overview of what this, what this says and what Rand said. Most of these quotes are from The Virtue of Selfishness, uh, a collection of essays that Rand put together. And in The Virtue of Selfishness, she says this, quote, The basic political principle of the objectivist ethics is, No man may initiate the use of physical force against others. No man or group or society or government has the right to assume the role of a criminal and initiate the use of physical compulsion against any man. Men have the right to use physical force only in retaliation and only against those who initiate its use. Here's another quote from the same book. Quote, the ethical principle involved is simple and clear-cut. It is the difference between murder and self-defense. 
A holdup man seeks to gain a value, wealth, by killing his victim. The victim does not grow richer by killing a holdup man. The principle is, no man may obtain any value from others by resorting to physical force. If we realize that for Rand, the non-aggression principle is the basis of all of her ethics, objectivist ethics come from the non-aggression principle. It's not merely a consequence of her philosophy, it's the basis of all the other ethics. And so it is with this that I have some objections that I wanted to look into. Uh, at first, this seems very appealing, right? I mean, it, it, it almost has a, a, a natural appeal to us. He started it, therefore it's his fault. If I had to respond to someone who started it, it's not my fault that he started it. He should have never started it. He should have never initiated force against me, is what a child will say in response to someone initiating force against them. So this ethic is almost natural to us, right? As children, we would say, well, he started it, if someone blames us for acting or reacting with force. Is this immature ethics, as some have said? Or is this an actual good basis for, for ethics? So... I, th I see some problems with it. Let's get into those. So first of all, I see that there's a lot of nuances, a lot of consequences of this ethic that I find problematic. So let's explore some of those. So can parents initiate force on their children for their own good? Uh, very few would argue that they shouldn't. Our instincts are to say that a parent can use force in some ways, but in other ways they can't, right? So at some point there's some force is too much. But if our ethic is we cannot initiate force, what makes children exempt from this ethic? How can somehow a parent not uh, abide by, this, by these ethics? Um, some have postulated that there's an age of consent for this. So at what point is the age of consent? If you draw a line, I think in the United States, most places it's, it's the age of 18 where parents no longer have authority to initiate force against their children for their own good. And there is indeed no age that, that a parent can do, um, that a parent can commit abusive force. Uh, there's no place where we can uh, harm our children in, in serious ways, right? So how can this be an absolute principle? How can this be a bedrock principle if, if it doesn't even apply to all children? It applies to no children in, in essence. But it's not just children, right? Can, can family, neighbors, or government protect the severely mentally ill by using force on them for their own good? Um, why stop it severely? Can we protect the somewhat mentally ill by using force on them? I mean, clearly we have to do this to some extent. And if this is allowable, then why isn't this slavery by Rand's own definition? Rand is saying that if I threaten force against you and make you do something, and I think it's for your own good, that this is slavery, that this is me exerting my will upon you in order to, for what I think is your own good, and what you think doesn't matter. So why isn't this applicable to children, to the mentally ill? Somehow we do have a right to initiate force against them for their own good? Let's think a little bit about others besides the mentally ill, besides children, uh, what about your neighbor? What if your neighbor's playing music loud enough that it's disturbing you, that it's disrupting your your sleep? If it's very loud and if it's in the middle of the night, that's not really force. So 
do I have a right to respond with force? Do the police have a right to respond with force to, to compel that person to stop with the music? And then where do you draw the line? If, if you're going to say uh, the loud music at night is a force, then why not, why not prohibit loud music in the, in the middle of the day or even quiet music that we might find objectionable? So it seems like there's an intuitive distinction to be made among things that are not force but yet are still unethical. All right, the non-aggression principle protects one's physical property. Obviously, you can't come in and force yourself to steal my things. But what about intellectual property? If I, by some legitimate means, uh, got a manuscript of, of Atlas Shrugged in 1956 before it was published, and I immediately published it as my own, I really haven't initiated force against Ayn Rand. I've stolen her ideas and her words, but I didn't use force to do so. Um, so this is where Rand might say, well, the uh, non-aggression principle includes fraud. It's not just force, but it's fraud. Fraud is equally as unethical as force is. But if that's the case, then what is the definition of fraud? Uh, we have legal definitions, of course, for what is illegal fraud, but is any, any case where I'm deceiving someone to gain from them fraud? What if I were to claim that I had a product to sell you that was very, very good, and I knew it wasn't that great? Is that fraud? Um, that's just a matter of opinion. If I know it's not an excellent product, yet I proclaim it as such to you, is that fraud? Is that, in effect, using force against someone? So the definition of force is unclear at times, and whether something should be unethical that isn't in the realm of force also seems to be the case. So it's not accounted for by this ethic. So the nuances are vague. Let's keep on going. So what about the risk of force in general? Is taking an action that may result in harm to others an initiation of force? May I drive a car knowing that I could accidentally crash it into an innocent person? Start a campfire knowing that there is a small chance that it will burn down someone else's forest? Really, it's unclear where to draw the line in terms of risk. Um, if I'm negligent with risk, we have laws in place now that protect people from my negligence. But it seems like the non-aggression principle would go farther than that. Like It would maybe prohibit all risk. If I know that I could possibly, in the smallest of chances, hurt someone else, then I can't do that thing. Remember, we're talking about this ethic as the foundation for all of ethics. So if it doesn't cover cases, at least in a principled way, it doesn't have to be... Um, a strict application of this, but yet it should lend itself to giving us a hint on how to go about these ethical questions. And it seems like we've got some problems with that. So let's keep going. Is there no importance to the balance of force versus benefit? What I'm saying is if I use force on another, isn't it sometimes necessary to do so, um, such as preventing suicide or a foolish accident? What about some barest form of wealth redistribution? If I could impose a very, very small tax through the government on billionaires and thus provide life-saving vaccination for tens of thousands of desperately poor children, wouldn't that be a good thing? Wouldn't that be more ethical than, than avoiding that? Because the taxation, though it is an aggression and it is, is using force to take money from some, is it really terrible to do that? Is it really uh, unethical to say it's worth it? 
Um, is there no point where taxation is, in a sense, worth it and the the force you're initiating is so tiny and inconsequential compared to the benefit it could bring to uh, some or others? Or what about the man who is lost in the woods and starving to to break into a secluded house and steal the barest amount of food so that he can eat and survive. Is that unethical? Is that something that is totally unallowable, that, that the man must starve, the children must not get the vaccines, unless there's a way to do it without force? Rand addressed this, these scenarios by saying, oh, the, the lifeboat scenarios, the scenarios where it's an extreme case of danger is not what these ethics are for. These ethics are for civilized... Uh, society. But I would think that these issues come up all the time, even in civilized society, even in everyday situations. And so I'm wondering if that's a good enough explanation. Does the non-aggression principle allow for any preemptive use of force? If I know a terrorist is probably going to kill dozens tomorrow and I'm in law enforcement, shouldn't I kill him today or otherwise use force against him to, to prevent uh, a disaster. Um, we have policies in place today f to make sure there's due process around it, around these kind of situations. It seems to me that preemptive use of force would have to be required in certain situations. Doesn't the non-aggression principle prefer a passive greater evil over an active lesser evil? So the classical example here is the runaway trolley car or the runaway train car. If it's going down a track and on that track is four people that are tied up and can't get off the track and I'm at the switch and at, I could switch the track over to a different track and it'll, it'll crash into a person's car and kill only one person, I think it would be pretty obvious that I should at least pull the switch to save four lives over one. But objectivism would tell us to know that's actively initiating force and it would be better to passively allow the greater evil to occur the at least intuitively greater evil i think there's some nuances to that argument as well so i'd, I'd love to explore those at some point but at least on its face it seems like a drawback what about other possibly unethical interactions between people that aren't force i'm thinking here of psychological manipulation uh, dominating behavior or fraudulent rhetoric. Um, I'm thinking perhaps a scenario like the peer pressure that you might experience in junior high or high school. There are many cases where someone is not even close to honest and is influences those who can be influenced to uh, engage in things that are det detrimental to them. Is psychological manipulation wrong? It doesn't seem to be prohibited under the non-aggression principle. What about the tendency of the non-aggression principle to cause retaliation and escalating retaliation? It seems to me that retaliation tends to create enmity, feuds, um, endless escalation. And that's this idea that if I simply am retaliating against someone else who initiated force, I'm fully ethical doesn't seem quite right. Is there no duty to back down, to try to make peace, to try to figure out a way? And if I fail to do that, am I not part of the problem? Am I not being unethical? It strikes me that it's very easy to go from the non-aggression principle to one of, of defending my honor and defending the integrity and 
defending the dignity uh, of my myself or my family in all cases and end up attacking all those who I see as my opponents and just simply accusing them of initiating force against me. And that brings me to the other problem with this, that there's an endless regress to argue over who initiated force first or who initiated force most severely. It seems like in any major disagreement, you've got one side saying the other side started it and that they're completely innocent. It seems like there would never be uh, any way to determine, in many cases, who truly did initiate force first. Sure, we have courts to do that for us in many cases today, but there are also many nuances to the law that that are beyond and, and not beholden to the non-aggression principle. And so it doesn't seem like it's an encompassing enough ethic to satisfy us. Then there are a few practical problems here. So what of the problem of the tragedy of the commons? What of the problem where if my cattle are grazing on the land and I can free them up to graze and overgraze and eat up all the grass that's in the commons? Have I not taken something that was meant as a common good or something that belongs to no one and ruined it through, not through force, but just through being selfish? I know some libertarians and and objectivists have said that there ought to be a voluntary co-op over such properties that only those in the co-op would would be able to take advantage of this. In, a, in essence, there would be private ownership of such land. But the problem even with that is that you can join the co-op and then violate the agreement of the co-op. You can get an advantage by violating uh, the co-op, in essence. So what of pollution? Some have argued that pollution is almost always an indirect harm. And so how can you say that polluting the environment or polluting just the air that someone else is breathing is initiating force. But if you say, yes, that is initiating force, you're polluting someone else's air, you're taking away something that that is naturally available to them, then wouldn't any polluting activity be wrong, be unethical? Couldn't I say that driving a car would be unethical because I am polluting the air in some small way? Also, Rand advocated a defensive army, right? It's part of this ethic. In order for Americans not to be not to have force initiated against them, they need an army. They need a government to protect them against aggressors. So if a defensive army is necessary, who will pay for it? If funding the army is voluntary, a great many will free ride as the army pr- the army will protect all. The police will protect all, even those who do not pay. If we're not going to allow taxation, how are we going to pay for this army and still keep it voluntary? You could take any one of these objections and unpack it further and have a lot deeper discussion. Zwolinski gave us the analogy to the astronomer Ptolemy in 8150, um, who was building on the theories of his day in astronomy. And so Ptolemy observed the planets orbiting the Earth as, as he understood it. And he saw that the sun and the other planets, as they went around the Earth, seemed to go in directions that were not intuitive, seemed to go forward for a time and then backwards at other times, and then they would jog back the other way. And so the tradition in his day was to attribute this to something called epicycles. Other cycles within the orbit, so in essence there was another orbit within the orbit. And Ptolemy started to chart out these epicycles to figure out 
what must they look like given the observations I have? And he saw that these epicycles had to get more and more and more complex. Many centuries after that, Copernicus and Galileo finally came up with a model that showed that it is not the Earth that is at the center of the solar system, but rather the Sun is, and the Earth and the other planets orbit around it. Thus, they were able to see that the epicycles that Ptolemy had put forth were an exercise to accommodate for complexity that was actually a fundamental flaw in the model. Is the non-aggression principle and all the gymnastics you might have to go through to accommodate it as a basis of ethics perhaps an epicycle? Is it perhaps fundamentally flawed as the basis of all ethics? Zolinsky advocated that we would thus discard the non-aggression principle as a foundational principle of ethics. Here's my take. I'm not ready to go that far yet. I think I have a lot more to learn on this, and I might explore it further in the future. But it seems to me that the non-aggression principle is fundamentally sound. It, it makes sense. There is an appeal to it. And I think a lot of these ethical questions are problems with the nuances of it problems with the edge cases and making sure it, it reconciles with, with common sense, with situations that we might be able to come up with or that we might experience. I'm not willing to say that it should be the foundation for all ethics. That seems to me to be going too far to be attributing to it something that it cannot do. That if you're making such an absolute statement, the applications of it better follow 100%. And it seems like there's enough argument against it that it, such an absolute would be flawed. However, if, if we adopt it as a good rule, as a, a proverb that can help inform all of our ethics, that is applicable in many cases, and can be overridden in certain cases, maybe we're closer on the right track. In other words, it's not the center and foundation of all ethics, but it's a big, important piece. That's where I stand today. What do you think? Send your feedback in to objections to objectivism at gmail.com, and we'll talk further in the future. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.